Good morning and welcome to church. I'm Rowan, one of the pastors here, and I love this part of the Bible. Uh, this part of Romans is just so important for us to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So it's my prayer that as we come and sit under this word together today, we would see the security that comes from recognizing what Jesus says of us. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us in that? Father God, we are so thankful that you are God and we are not. That you have spoken and that we can hear your view of the world and your view of us. And we pray that this morning as we think through this topic of shame and shame before others and before you, that your spirit through your word would show us what an amazing privilege we have to know a world with no condemnation. Change us, we pray, in your son's name. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment a world without shame. No, no shame at all. You know what shame is, right? That, that painful feeling, the humiliation we experience because of the wrong we've done or the foolish things that we've done. Imagine a world without shame. Now, no one likes shame. We hate feeling shame. We hate people looking at us and seeing that we've done things wrong. And My hunch is we don't like to shame others either, not naturally. The only time we kind of think it's okay to shame someone else is often to get out of shame ourselves, where we can kind of go, well, it's not my fault, it's yours. And so we try and shame them. And then shame becomes this thing in society that gets passed around like a hot potato with no one, no one wanting to hold it. Shame's an incredibly scary emotion to live with. But I want to put it to you that a world without shame is an even scarier place. Imagine that, a world where nothing else changed, everything was as it is, except no one felt any shame. Is that a world that you'd like to live in? My hunch is that while we all hate the feeling of shame, we hate the idea of no one feeling shame even more. Because intrinsically, we all recognize that people do and say things that we ought to be ashamed of. And a world where no one feels shame is a world without right or wrong or without regard to right and wrong. It's a world without a moral compass, no justice, no consequences. A world stripped bare of any concern or care for anyone other than ourselves. No shame exists because there is a right and wrong. How we live matters. Sometimes we imagine a world where we never feel shame. And because we think that we can live our lives in a way that will never cause hurt or pain, will never cause wrong. But when we think that way, when we think we can live in the world without shame, we bury our heads in the sand and shut our eyes and ears to the reality of what we're like. If you're not convinced that you and I deserve shame, then just ask someone who lives with you. Have I ever done anything to cause, well, that I should be ashamed of? For most of us, though, the problem isn't convincing us that we've got things to be ashamed of, is it? The problem is dealing with the shame that we experience, because there's so much to be ashamed of. If you're anything like me, as I've started talking about shame this morning and, and, and thinking about a world with it and why it's there, you've probably started cataloging some of the shameful things you've said and done. Some things will rise to the surface in your thought life, feelings of failure as a son or a daughter, 
as a husband or a wife, as a father, a mother, a friend or a foe. Things that we've said and things that we've done come to the surface and they're just the ones that we're happy to kind of let go to the surface. There's so much more that we bury, isn't there? We don't want to think about or talk about because, well, we're ashamed. I begin here today because the passage of the Bible that Austin just read for us begins with an incredible claim. In fact, if you've got your Bible in front of you, and, or you're taking one of the church ones home, love you to have that as a gift from us. I'd love you to take out your pen and underline Romans 8, chapter 1. I don't know if you're, a, you're an underliner or a highlighter. I don't know if you do that in your Bible. You're like, oh, I don't want to do that. This is just worth it. Maybe it'll cause you great pain to do it. You don't have to do it. But this is a phenomenal truth. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. As I read those words, I feel just a weight lift from my shoulders. The condemnation that Paul is talking about here as he writes this letter to the Romans isn't just the shame we all experience and feel because we've failed our own expectations. So often that is our shame, isn't it? We, we want to achieve something or we want to do something like, oh, I didn't achieve that goal. I didn't act in the way I wanted to. But the condemnation that Paul is talking about here is the infinitely greater shame that we ought to feel before the God who knows all and sees all. Imagine that. A printout of your motives and actions, your thoughts and words, even just of the last week. Imagine what that would look like to read and to see. Well, God sees all and He knows all. Nothing is hidden from Him. Not the words you muttered in the quietness of your head, not the thoughts that went through your mind. All of them He sees. Not only towards others, but also toward Him. And in this letter to the Romans, Paul's been explaining that before God, no one is guiltless. All ought to experience shame. He said it back at the start of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. As a result, he said, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals and reptiles. Paul's laid out in this letter to the Romans the reality of what the human nature is like. That we are without excuse. Just two chapters later, he says these words, There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's there's no one who does what is good, not even one. Before man and before God, each and every one of us ought to feel shame. And Paul is clear that on our own, each and every one of us will feel shame. If not now, on the day Jesus returns. But that's where these incredible words in chapter 8 that you've either mentally or physically highlighted provide incredible hope for us. See, we spend our lives trying to live without shame. We try to bury it, but we can't. We try to redefine it, but it keeps raising its ugly head. We try to outlive shame, but we fail to do even what we think we ought to do, let alone what God thinks. But here and here only is the solution to shame. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
They're amazing words. Not only do these words claim to remove our shame, but they tell us how that can be your reality. Without throwing justice to the wind, without burying your head in the sand to the realities of how you've lived, there is a way that you can be without shame, without condemnation, before the true and living God today. There's no better news to start the year with. There's no better news to understand for us than this truth. You can be without shame. The message of Romans is really that the history of the human race, the history of the whole world has a turning point. And we see it in the fourth word in chapter 8, verse 1. I want us to look at that carefully. The fourth word is now. Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. See, what Paul is highlighting is something that was and now something that is. He's taking us from the what was to the what is for the readers of this passage. Something's happened in the history of the world, really in the history of the world, and in the life of every person who trusts in Jesus that divides the whole world into two categories. What was and what is. What was was condemnation. For each of us, before God and before others, because none of us could live God's way. And Paul explains that here in this passage by talking about the role the Jewish law had to help us to see the way that we've acted before God. The kids thought it was so helpful in in highlighting for us the reality of what the law does. God's law was God's way of responding to him. Like any relationship, it's got its boundaries, right? If you go into a relationship with someone, there's kind of rules, some of them spoken, some of them unspoken. In our house, a clean kitchen is a happy wife. And that's an unspoken rule, but it's very true. And so you kind of live not with these rules to, I've got to do it, but because that's what relationship in our family looks like, to love Sarah is to have a clean kitchen. Um, And so there are ways that we relate that the law was to highlight in the way that we relate to God. The law laid out how we should respond to God's action. In the Old Testament, it was given the Ten Commandments that since God has saved you, since I have brought you out of Egypt, God says, therefore respond to me this way. This is how you be my people. And it showed them how to live. It was good and right. But it failed. Or more correctly, we failed it. Paul says in verse 3 that what we needed, the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh. I don't know what sort of movies you're into, but occasionally I like watching spy movies. Tried to convince Sarah to watch a Bond movie the other night, didn't work. But um, I was thinking about spy movies, and I don't know if you ever noticed that in spy movies, there's always this spy, often Russian, no offence to any Russians here, but a Russian spy that you never really know whether they're on your side or not. You know, that the whole movie, you're kind of watching, seeing how they're going, and it's like, are they for us, are they against us? Is this spy with us or uh, against us? Well, the law is kind of like that. It's kind of like a Russian spy. Throughout the whole Bible, we hear the law and it's kind of, is it good? Is it for us or is it against us? Because it points, it points out that it's good and helpful for the way we ought to respond to God. But at other points, we see that it shows us how sinful and broken we are and it's not able to help us at all. See, the law of God is good. But because of our own brokenness, we react against it. It has a terrible effect on us. It's like a wet paint sign. I don't know how many of you find wet paint signs incredibly frustrating. I hate wet paint signs. When I see a bench that says, wet paint, don't touch, the first thing I want to do is touch it. I'm just like, is it really? Is it really wet? Like, how long ago did they write the sign? Could I sit there now? Like, was it still wet? And it just makes me want to touch it. 
so too the law. When God says this is how you ought to live, it shows us that the human flesh, our own weakness, is that we don't want to live God's way. We want to be God. We want to choose the right way to live and not let Him define how we live in the world. In 1982, two psychologists conducted a study to show how um, reverse psychology worked. And in a nutshell, it displays human nature. (laughs) They got a group of kids uh, and they put a bunch of toys in this room with this group of kids and then they watched how long children played with different toys and they catalogued all the toys to see which was the most popular toy that all the children played with and what was the most unpopular toy. Because they, they did this experiment, they watched, and they found the toy that was the most unpopular. No one wanted to play with it, no airtime, it just got left on the side, sad. It's probably some Toy Story 5 movie that will come out soon in the future about the toy that was never played with, right? And it's on, on the side there, no one, no one touched it. And then the next experiment, they took that toy and they put two groups in the room, one at a time. The first group, they said, um, you can now play with any toy again, the same as the first experiment. And the second group, they said, you can play with any toy except the one no one wanted to play with before. And do you know between those two groups, the second group where no one was allowed to touch the toy that no one wanted to play with before, they touched that toy three times more than any other. What does it tell us? Human nature is broken. We are broken. Each and every one of us has a desire to set the rules and play God, to call the shots in our own lives. We don't like being told what we can and can't do. But that's what the law does. The law holds out the reality of what right living looks like. And no one likes that. It's just in our nature to rebel against God's good way. Have you ever heard the parable of the scorpion and the frog? A friend of mine keeps talking about this parable all the time. It's in a number of different movies. It's in um, the movie Drive recently. I also heard it as an explanation for why Trump is the way Trump is uh, in, in a journal article. But basically, the, the parable goes like this. There's a scorpion who wants to cross this river, but he can't swim. And then he meets a frog. And a frog obviously can swim. The frog's in the water. So the scorpion, it's a talking scorpion and a talking frog, just in case you're wondering. The, 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 The scorpion says to the frog, look, I'll do you a deal. Can you please put me on your back and take me across the river? And the frog says, no way, I don't want to do that. You'll bite me and then I'll die. And the scorpion says, yes, but if I bite you, we'll both die. So I need you to stay alive to get me across the river because I can't swim. And so the frog thinks about it and says, sure, I'll, I'll do it. I'll take you across. I want to be helpful and you know, it will help you out and I trust you. And so the scorpion jumps on the frog's back and the frog starts swimming across. He's halfway when he hears bang on his back. And the scorpion's bitten him. He's stung. And as they're both now doomed to death, sinking in the middle of the river, the frog says, why did you do it? And the scorpion says, I couldn't help it. It was just in my nature. That's exactly what happens with us and the law. It was good. It was rational. It was helpful. But it's our nature to reject it, dooming us all to death. The solution to our problem of our shame and condemnation is not try a bit harder to do God's law. It's not do a bit better next time. That's a terrible, crushing response because we can't do it. It is just in our nature. We keep wanting to be God ourselves. No, we need a new way. And the solution that God provides is to recognize what changed the what was, what we were under condemnation, to the what is of Romans 8. Now, no more condemnation. This passage, we see what turned the what was to the what is, is the turning point of human history and the turning point of every person who trusts in Jesus. 
comes when we recognize the gravity of what happened at the end of verse 3. Come with me. And let's see what is now because of Jesus. Romans 8 verse 3. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Did you hear that? What the law could not do, what the, what the, the rules, the guidelines of how to respond to God's loving actions it could not do. Because we were broken and our human nature is to turn against God. What, what that could not do, God did. He did something about it himself. He stepped into the world. Paul says, condemning sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the Lord's requirement would be fulfilled in us. In the chapter before this, in Romans 7, Paul is talking about this experience of doing what he doesn't want to do and not doing what he does want to do. And it's frustrating to live in the world, not being able to do what you think you ought to do. And, and he ends by saying, who will rescue us from this body of death? And God's answer then comes in 8 chapter 3, God will. I can't rescue myself, but God does. As God sent Jesus to earth in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's saying that Jesus came as a human. He was like sinful flesh, but he wasn't sinful. He experienced all the pains and the frustrations and the pressures that you and I experience, yet he did not turn his back on God. He resisted that human nature, that desire to, to pretend we're in control and trusted his father. He went from womb to tomb without committing one sin. He had nothing to be ashamed of. That's why Paul says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, for he did not sin. He came to do what, what we couldn't, to live the perfect life as, as a perfect sin offering. The Old Testament law had taught that to reject God, to turn our backs on God, was to turn our backs on life itself. Uh, to imagine for a moment that... Um, the power company kept sending you kind of little letters in the mail. And they were saying, hey, we love providing you with power, but you, kind of, you need to speak back to us. We need to hear that you're, you're paying us in this sense. But you went, nah, I don't need to listen to them. I love the power company. And you just ignored all their letters, ignored everything they said. Well, it won't be too long before the power company comes along and says, you know what? I provide power for you. You've not responded to me. You've not kept the relationship, the agreement that we had. I have every right to cut off that power. So it is with us and God. Except God doesn't provide the power, He provides life. And to those that turn their back on God and say, look, no offense, I just want to ignore what you've said, I want to ignore you, I don't really need you in my life, God will say that life is what you will lose. Why should you deserve life if you've rejected me? The Old Testament held out that if we reject God, death is the penalty. But when Jesus steps onto the world scene, He's the ultimate payment for sin. He takes the penalty that we deserve. He dies so that we might live. And in that, he condemns sin itself. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says these words, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, the creator of the universe, who made you and sustains you, who is in control of all things, so loved the world that he stepped into the world and took the penalty that we deserve. He didn't deserve any of it. He died. He took the condemnation and shame that should have been given to us so that we could have life. He faced the consequences for what we deserved. 
So for those who trust in Jesus, you can be sure that there is no more shame. There is no more condemnation before God because God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Jesus' last words on the cross before he died and then rose again were, it is finished. It's finished. He has absorbed the shame we deserve, gone, wiped away. Everything we've ever done, said or thought and will do and will say and will think has been paid for, extinguished, completely absorbed in him. There's no shame that's hidden or unjustly ignored. Justice is delivered. The one who's been wronged, God himself, in the person of his son, is the one who took the penalty on the cross. So that those who trust in him can stand without shame and condemnation. A number of years ago, a songwriter wrote these words. They're on the screen. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. I find these incredibly helpful words to to highlight the reality of what has happened for those who trust in Jesus. No fate I dread. What was, when I was not in Christ, was that I, I dreaded every fate because my future was shame and condemnation and death and judgment and hell. But now... What is, is that I can say, no fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future is sure because the price has been paid for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. He was raised to overthrow the grave. In a moment, we're going to sing those words together. They're exceptionally powerful words. My hunch is that for some of us, they're actually incredibly hard to sing. Because for many of us, what was, still is. That condemnation that we sit under is still a reality for the way that we live. Our old habits, our our broken thoughts and actions still raise their ugly head in our lives and cause us all sorts of shame. Our thoughts come back to the shame that we feel for the actions that we've done. Do you find that? Do you find yourself going over the things you've said and done in the past or in the present and thinking, how could God God love me? How could Jesus forgive me? I trust him, but he can't love me. Not when I'm like this, not when I'm still stuck with this shame. For many of us, we believe the lie that an imperfect faith can't be a real faith. We think that we need to be perfect and, and always live the perfect way and fulfill everything that God has said, but we've forgotten the reality of what Jesus has said. It's moments like those we forget that what the law was powerless to do because of our sinful flesh, God did. Done, finished, stamped across every sin we've ever committed or will commit for those who trust in Jesus. It is finished. If Jesus is your king and you trust him, then there is no condemnation. He's paid the price in full. Yet we still experience a fight this side of Jesus' return, don't we? But it's a fight not concerning our condemnation or shame. Don't get your categories mixed up. The battle is done. It's finished. We are secure if we trust in him. The struggle we face is the struggle to keep living in response to what Jesus has done. And next week, we're going to see that we're no longer helpless in that fight either. 
that God has enabled us to fight that fight now with his helper who was come and he has given to us. But regarding our shame, the fight's been won. There is no condemnation, literally not one. Not one thing can be said to condemn those who are in Christ because in him the price has been paid. Regarding our shame, it's been worn by another. Regarding our condemnation, someone else took our place. Wherever you are in that loop of failure and its resulting shame, take this truth into the battle with sin that wages war against your soul and remember, remind yourself that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you trust Jesus, you are as righteous as Christ himself. You are as clean and as shame-free as Christ himself. For as God looks at you, he sees Jesus. God's love for you doesn't go in and out dependent on your last prayer or whether or not you, you took that opportunity to share the news of Jesus or, or because you, you lusted on one day or a myriad of other accusations, even the true ones. None of those affect God's love for those who trust in Jesus because it is finished, it's done, it's paid for. Because in Jesus, there is no condemnation left. Jesus paid it all. Friends, that's why we confess our sins to God and to one another. It's why we have connect groups, to, to remind one another that there is no condemnation in Christ. It's why we meet with other Christians on a Sunday, so we can grab each other by the shoulders, look each other in the eyes, and say, if you are in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, there is no condemnation. How often do you need to be reminded of that? I need to be reminded daily. So I can need God's word to keep coming to me and saying, Rowan, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. It is done. It is finished. Church, will you hear that? Will you hear God saying to you today, if you trust in him, there is no condemnation. There is no shame. It is finished. It's done. It's paid for. Doesn't that change everything? But maybe for you, what was that condemnation that you sat under still is because you've not yet come to Jesus. The offer of no condemnation can only be for those who are in Christ because it's only in Him that our sin can be dealt with. It's only Him who could wear our shame and the condemnation. That's why Paul ends that first sentence, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If today you know that for you what was still is, then why not make today the turning point of your life? Why not start this year coming to Christ and recognizing that your sins have been paid for? The condemnation and shame you rightly deserve can be no condemnation, no shame. The moment you surrender your life to the God who loves you, to the God who died in your place. What we have been offered today, what those of us who trust in Jesus have, is a far better world than a world without shame. We have a world where someone took the shame for us. Justice is maintained. And yet, he took our penalty. In and of himself, Jesus died so that we might live. We just get to look at Jesus and see that in Him we have been incredibly loved. 
For in him our shame and condemnation have been absorbed totally. Friends, that's news to celebrate, isn't it? That's news to change the way we think about life when our failures come to our mind and our, and our brokenness raises its ugly head. That's news that not only changes our future of eternity with God, but also our now in the way that we live today. Friends, because of Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Him. Why don't we pray and thank God that that is the reality for us. Let's pray. Father, it is such a relief to know that we will not be held to account for the things we've said and done and even the things we will say and do because you have paid the price in Christ. Today, as we start this new year, we ask that you'd help us to see our own sin the way you see it, forgiven, paid for, finished. Help us not to give in to Satan's lies that, we, that, that our sin is too much for you. Help us this day to trust your word that for those in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. And for those of us, Lord, that today don't yet know you or maybe want to know you, Will you come by your word? Will you convict us by your spirit of the great goodness of your love and the hope of no condemnation and shame? We are sorry for the way that we've treated you. We're sorry for turning our backs on you. Lord, please forgive us and help us to live with Jesus as our King, knowing that he has taken all the pain and the suffering and the condemnation that we rightly deserve in eternity so that we could stand forgiven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.